Yanis Kokosalakis, uh, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Hello, and um, many thanks for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here today, or to be here online with you, at least. I'm Yanis. I'm, I'm a historian of the Soviet Union, and I also imagine socialism more broadly. I, I am originally from Greece. I grew up there, but I've spent uh, a lot of um, years, like many academics, traveling around the world, mostly Europe, actually. Um, I did my PhD in Scotland, in Edinburgh. I also studied there for my first degree. I subsequently were in Dublin, CD, where I did some work on some aspects of my PhD research that didn't make it into um, the book we'll be talking about today. And I've since moved to Germany in Bielefeld, where I'm currently right at. So you wrote this book, this excellent book, which I read uh, from cover to cover, and I, and I really, really enjoyed it. And it's called Building Socialism, the Communist Party and the Making of the Soviet System, 1921 to 1941. So just for our listeners, uh, as we start the interview, um, can you just give us a basic outline of your book? What is the basic idea? What were you setting out to, to write about? And what does it say? Well, the main theme of my book is the activity of communists in the Soviet Union, uh, primarily in the, in the interwar period that uh, is, uh, at least in Soviet historiography, is referred to as a period of the construction of socialism. And when I say communists, I mean people who we are not necessarily familiar with, not the, the party bigwigs, but uh, lower ranking functionaries, but also regular people who held party cards, who were members of the party, but didn't necessarily have uh, positions of power. And um, my main purpose was to investigate what the role of these people in the political transformations and conflicts of the time was, and how they intervened, how they experienced these, and how they perhaps influence these developments. And the book is primarily based on uh, an ar archival case study of the Communist Party organization of the Kirov factory in Leningrad, one of the biggest machine building enterprises in the Soviet Union, which is still actually functioning today. And apart from that, I looked at a number of other uh, party archives in, in the region in terms of uh, of the Leningrad um, 
provincial committee, the, the regional party apparatus in the in the area where the city of Leningrad is located. So one of the things I really liked about your book is that you focus on this institution in the Soviet Union called the Primary Party Organization. And your seemingly overall goal is to try to understand the role of the Vanguard Party as a political institution in negotiating the relationship between society and the state in a post-revolutionary regime that's trying to construct socialism. And one of the, I think, most fascinating things about your book was that these primary party organizations in the USSR, um, very often, though the historiography kind of paint them as something divorced from the everyday life of people or some ideological imposition, your book actually tries to show how workers and communist activists not only had agency, but also play th their interests played a role in shaping how the early Soviet state was constructed. So it's interesting how, like, through the primary party organization, you're basically recentering the agency of workers on the shop floor, recentering re the in what way, let me phrase it a little bit differently, like, like, what is the role or how would you frame the role of worker and communist activist agency in structuring um, the early Soviet state and the party itself? So I think um, one way of answering this question is uh, to tell you a bit about how I came to that project. And there are basically two I don't know, intellectual sources, if you um, if you like. And one is Leninist theory, Leninist revolutionary theory, and the other is the historiography of um, the Soviet Union as, uh, uh, as it exists in, in English primarily. And um, there are basically the party emerges there in two different um, in two different ways. So in in Leninist theory, you have this notion of the of the vanguard party. So Lenin was writing about um, the necessity of the most active people in the workers' movement and the socialist movement to be organized in a <clears throat> in a well structured and functioning organization in order to in order to pursue the political goals. And I think this was mostly developed in the context of a pre-revolutionary situation. So the, the early um, um, second international debates even about how socialists should pursue their socialist goals within capitalism, what, what, what it means to pursue revolutionary politics within um, a capitalist society. And in, in that regard, that was quite straightforward at the time. So you have the party and you intervene in the uh, in labor struggles and trade unions. And there are maybe some strategic debates about what you do in terms of uh, parliamentary activity and so on. But um, it was I think it was very unclear to everyone, um, including Lenin and the Bolsheviks, about what the, what the role of this organization was going to be after 
the revolution, after the revolution had taken place, after um, the state had been overthrown, state power had been overthrown, what, what is the role of the party? And they, they had really no idea about this. It wasn't really talked about. It was something that um, was perhaps left to um, a different generation. And the first time Lenin begins to approach the subject, to even to broach it even, is in a, in a short piece shortly before the October Revolution in September called uh, Will the Bolsheviks Be Able to Retain um, State Power? And the argument there is um, that obviously the working class as a whole is not ready to exercise state power. And he has this um, quote about uh, um, not every kitchen maid being um, being able to govern, which has bizarrely been uh, since mistranslated as every kitchen maid is able to govern, which is exactly the opposite thing from what Lenin said. And what he suggests at the time is that the that the most active and conscious workers, most conscious of the historical mission, should organize themselves within the fact of the organizing in, in the political organization, which obviously for Lenin is the Bolshevik party, in order to provide the necessary leadership to the rest of the of the working class, the less the less politicized members of the working class, the less experienced um, in terms of organization and administration of the working class. And this eventually, this idea eventually becomes institutionalized in what we subsequently know as the leading role of the communist party in Soviet society, which was uh, a stipulation that made it into almost every constitution of um, of the 20th century socialist states. So I, I actually wanted to see how this um, institutional reality um, was connected or reflected that original Leninist idea. So this is the one source of the project. And the other is how this was um, actually interpreted in, in the historiography of the Soviet Union. And what every every student in at university who, who picks up a book on the Soviet Union learns is that there was this massive debate in the 80s between the totalitarian school of um, Soviet history and the revisionist school of Soviet history. And what basically these people were arguing about was the primacy of the state or society. <clears throat> the totalitarianists were saying that Essentially, for analytical purposes, the, per the power of the state was boundless because it was a dictatorial state. It was a there was a political monopoly of the Communist Party because the, there was a, a political police, a terror apparatus. The state could do whatever it liked. The revisionists, on the other hand, were saying that this is um, this is fantasy. This is not how real political development works. So we need to look at um, we need to look at social structures, we need to look at social habits, at social um, mentalities, and we need to investigate how the strategies of the state impact 
those social realities are not transformed in their implementation by these social realities. And my, my hunch when I started my research was that the, the primary party organization of the communist of the Communist Party, where this sort of institutional environment where you had an overlap between the state and society. You have essentially people who are, um, by definition, on the side of the state, but are not necessarily state functionaries. But they, at the same time, they live in society. They are normal um, working people, primarily. We are talking about uh, a party that is primarily industrially based. But uh, there wasn't really that much about that in, in what I was reading. So I thought I might uh, go and look into it. And what I discovered was that essentially you had these people who were um, affected by state policy. They were trying to implement state policy and they were trying to involve their um, their social environment, their colleagues from work, into um, into implementing the party's vision about uh, about social transformation, and this obviously was uh, it was a very contested process because there was a there was a there was a there was a degree of interpretation in in policy implementation, and obviously people who um, were working in factories were were seeing things differently for, from people who were working in um, the regional apparatus of, of the party, often as professionals. I was just going to ask about modernization, because in the introduction, um, there's this uh, reinterpretation of the Soviet project as modernization, and you said that that's not a good enough uh, explanation. Yeah, so one of the um, one of the one of the attempts to overcome this debate about primacy between the visionists and the totalitarianists subsequently in the 90s was this attempt to reinterpret Soviet socialism as a modernization project. And modernization is a, a sociological concept that, um, that comes from 1950s, 1960s, um, social science, I believe. And the idea was basically that uh, Soviet socialism was an attempt to overcome the to overcome traditional Russian social structures by means of um, of a rational implementation of scientific development and. The argument there is that, in that regard, it has a it has a lot of commonalities with other projects of modernization that aren't necessarily socialist, so um, liberal project of modernization as well, or state-led capitalist projects of modernization. And I thought that wasn't necessarily incorrect. I think, um, obviously, if you if you want to look at things at this level of abstraction, you could draw certain connections in terms of, say, you know, public campaigns of literacy. Yes, a lot of states undertook these in the 20th century, and they weren't necessarily revolutionary socialist states. 
But I think that what, what was interesting about the Soviet Union, what was specific about the Soviet Union, is that they were trying to do this while at the same time, on the on the one hand, building an economy that wasn't capitalist, that wasn't um, driven by commodity production, that was um, planned for need. And at least in theory, that was the, the political economy they were aiming for. But also in terms of creating a new system of political administration that uh, was predicated on involving as many people as possible in the actual implementation of policy, in the real day-to-day um, -day, um, making policy work. So not not just um, not just in terms of consultation of finding out what people thought and what was um, popular or not, but on actually delegating administrative power and diffusing it through through society as much as possible. And this um, I, th I think this has a lot to do with this um, Marxist communist vision of the notion of the withering away of the state. So it's not a matter of administration going away. It's a matter of administration being as as publicly shared as possible. You know, the question of modernization brings up a point about your book that I really liked, which was that you make an effort to understand the Soviet Union on its own terms and almost directly critique the idea that there needs to be sort of like sociological theories imported to make sense of it. Um, that there, and, and the reason that you say that is because when you look at something like the party or the primary party organization, that these institutions are something unique in of themselves that maybe certain sociological theories like can't fully explain. Um, and I thought that that was like a very refreshing kind of like approach to trying to make sense of the Soviet Union on its own terms. Um, and that, of course, brought brings up this component of your book that is also really interesting is like the role of ideology in managing the development of socialism, because you basically go into an explanation of how these primary party organizations or even splits within the party are totally dependent on ensuring that this Marxist-Leninist ideology is playing a role, a political role in structuring how production processes happen, in structuring how people are engaging with the building of socialism. Yet the splits that end up emerging are not on the question of ideology, for example, in when the left opposition emerges or the right opposition emerges, you explain those splits as being the product of economic pressures, like the like the implementation of the first five-year plan or the implementation of uh, or, or the contradictions from the new economic policy. So you make this. So I say all this to say that you make this like outline where there's actually a lot of ideological unanimity at the level of the party, because people like Trotsky or Zinoviev or Bukharin 
or Lenin or Stalin or whomever have general agreement on Marxism, Leninism, and the party's role in society, but that the splits that are that were interpreted in the 20th century through an ideological lens in the West are in reality actually these negotiations over the material and economic contradictions of industrialization and development. I think um, yeah, I think that's a fine way of putting it. I don't want to I don't want to make uh, a simplistic econ economistic argument um, to say that you know these political splits reflect these and this um, um, economic realities. But it's definitely the case, in my mind at least, that these people, um, the major party factions in the 1920s at least, they are in broad agreement of in terms of what uh, of what they want to achieve. And that is primarily industrialization in, in the 1920s. And, but they're not sure how they're going to achieve it while at the same time maintaining um, their, their, their alliance with their political base. And I think ideas work um, they work differently at different levels of organization. So obviously when you have uh, professional politicians who are also intellectuals, they are going to be thinking a lot more deeply about the implications of certain ideas, perhaps even overthinking them and maybe inventing political differences where there are none. But it's definitely the case that um, the only way these um, policy differences, I'm not going to say political differences, but I think policy differences is a better way of putting it in terms of actually of practical, um, of practical ways of getting to an agreed, a commonly agreed goal. The only way of getting these policy differences to produce political results is by... Um, is by relating them to, to the rank and file of the party in a way that speaks directly to their economic concerns. And that is primarily the question of industrialization in the 1920s. And everyone is in agreement about this. There is absolutely no one saying that maybe we don't really need industry. Even if you even if you take the sort of more rightist um, um, positions of, of associated with Karen and Tomsky and these folks, what they're saying is that basically we, we can't achieve uh, a leap in industrialization. We need to keep this slow pace. Otherwise, we are going to derail our purpose. It's not something about um, not pursuing the purpose. It's about pursuing it in, in a different way. But, you know, it was interesting how like... Uh on the shop floor in your uh, in, in investigation, you basically show how the working class's um, implicit hostility towards management was used by the highest rungs of the commu of, of the communist, uh, not just the party, but even like the the actual government itself to construct the state society relation which is really interesting because it almost suggests that there was like 
management, the, the, this working class hostility towards management was like uh, an important political tool. So maybe could you just talk a little bit about that? Um, what role did this working class shop floor antagonism towards management, what role did that play in, in the development of uh, the both the party and the society itself? Well, in terms of the opposition, it's very, I think it's very easy to, to see what was going on there. It's, you can mobilize support for your own political platform by pointing to the current um, the current government supporting supporting management and the factory administrations and saying these people are they're pursuing their own interests. They're not interested in socialism anymore and there is this process of bureaucratization and you need to support the real um, left-wing faction of, of the struggle in order to retire on the revolution to its proper course. And it's it's a fairly easy populist argument to make. But I think um, but what's more interesting is that the left is um, is in practice outflanked and outlefted by the leadership, by by the Stalin um, faction, if you like, by the Central Committee majority, because around that time when these debates start becoming really heated, they um, they start deciding on on the on on the process of rapid industrialization, and they say that they will put they will put the resources in, into the factories to make this um, economic expansion possible. But they will also give the rank and file the the rank and file of the communist party, so the, the communist workers in the factories the institutional tools to ensure that they will be able to control management in practice. So they they do this rhetorically in, an, in a number of um, occasions. They do this um, with um, a series of um, police investigations into management corruption, including um, the, the Shakti trials, which are often referred to in, Soviet historiographers, the first show trial in, in the Soviet Union. This is essentially an attack on on management from from the side of the of the leadership. But I don't want to suggest that they are doing this merely for political gain. They are doing this because the leadership itself is actually deeply mistrustful of management. And this is part of the reason for that is that a lot of the of the managers and administrators in the in the nineteen twenties are from what they say an, an alien class background. They are essentially the old um, middle class elite that has been now so they've been kept on because they have no one else to to do these jobs. But even subsequently. When a lot of these people are replaced by the new promotees coming from the working class, they are just always worried that these people are going to pursue their own particular interests within production rather than follow the general party line that is about um, socialist information, that is about um, the, the progress of industry. So for them, 
for the leadership, the party rank and file is an institutional tool of control of, of the state apparatus. But it's also, but it's, it's, its development is also a major ideological goal. They're doing this because they believe that as much power as possible should be diffused throughout the, throughout the state apparatus into society. So, for example, if you look at the, um, there is um, a famous decree on uh, so one-person management that has um, had traditionally been interpreted in um, in Soviet labor historiography as the sort of turning point where whereby um, the leadership and Stalin made their um, sided with management over. Over the rank and file and the in the grassroots uh, institutions, and basically what, what this decree does is essentially it makes management responsible for any sort of failure, while at the at the same time encouraging party intervention into into aspects of the production process. So it, it essentially um, separates operational responsibility from um, from political responsibility and political responsibility political responsibility purely on the shoulders of management while at the while at the same time not giving them any tools of control over the party organization so it creates this sort of permanent conflict institutional conflict on the factory floor between the primary party organization as a mass institution and management as a more narrow, more technical um, administrative bureaucracy. And obviously these two are connected because usually the managers, the top managers will be members of the organization, but the organization will always retain the upper hand in, in this relationship. That's such an excellent, excellent point. Um, so how do you, connect this with sort of this uh, charge, you know, that there were no unions anymore, right? So like this, or the unions were sort of social cohesion mechanism. Um, how do you sort of connect this with that? And what I mean by unions, like independent or antagonistic unions. Of course, these also don't really exist in capitalism either, but still, um, how do you sort of reconcile it or have you thought about it? Well, I've, I've thought about it um, a bit. I think the, the function of the trade unions is still different and it needs a separate investigation because they are also this fascinating organization. Um, they are part of this um, the structure of the party triangle. As, the, as it was called, the factory triangle, as it was called, uh, which is basically the union organization, management, and and the party organization, and all these three were connected in sort of managing the labor process and the social relations in the factory. And what the unions essentially did is that they they were no longer antagonistic. They were not they were not striking unions, but they were. Um, they were involved in 
in labor disputes. And they were essentially they are the remit was to sort of prevent the escalation of, of labor disputes in a way that would um, derail the, the production process. And they usually did that by siding with the workers rather than management. This is, um, this is one aspect of the, my answer. But the other issue, I think, is that the, the party organization was just such a, such a powerful political um, institution that it was it was it was a much more effective way of of getting things done than it was, than a striking union would have been. So the the party organization in the factory was an element of the ruling party of the Soviet Union. It was um it was a it was a political institution with control of of state administration at all levels. So there was an incentive for workers to join the party and be active in in the political process managed by this um, by the primary party organizations because this was what would give them the upper hand in any um, in, in in any sort of um, labor management disputes. And this is something that happens that happens a lot in the in, during the industrialization period. You have you have a permanent um, you have a permanent process of politicization of even the the, the most mundane labor districts, like um, not having enough materials to um, to perform a shift efficiently. And the way they they do this is by they have their meetings, they refer problems to other instances of, of the party apparatus, and these usually get resolved without there being um, strikes or labor workouts. Sometimes there are um, there are things like strike action, and they, we find that they are often led by communist party members who are maybe not necessarily in, in the leading bodies, of, of the party organization, but they are these sort of activist people who both believe in in the political mission of the party, but are also very um, embedded in their own social milieu. So they feel they have a responsibility to advocate for their interests, and they do this sometimes at um, at cross purposes with the with them. With both management and the party leadership, this is obviously not an efficient, um, smoothly running um, system. It's a, it, there's a lot of conflict involved, but the purpose of it is to internalize this conflict and not let it get out of hand. This is obviously a very strenuous um, period economically. Industrialization is very hard. It has been extremely hard for um, for working people in, in most historical instances, but it was particularly hard in the Soviet Union because it was achieved and pursued in such an intensified um, manner in such a short-term period. And the purpose of the party is to 
to a large extent at least, is to prevent all the conflicts that emerge out of this um, out of this train from derailing either the, the, the production process or the or the political situation in the country. And they, uh, I, I feel they do that pretty well. So th there are there are cases um, in the Soviet Union where you had some waves of strike action that um, sometimes had to be controlled by the police. But we find that these are usually in, in, in industrial areas with, uh, with relatively little part saturation, so in lighter industry, in more rural areas. So to my mind, the, work, the, the, the party organization was actually quite effective in both controlling um, the, the impulses of more, um, say, uh, confrontational people, with, whether from the site of management or labor, but also as, uh, as, a, as, a, as an institutional channel for influence on the part of labor within the, within the factory. For our listeners, there is this um, phenomenon which you've mentioned previously called the Lenin levy or this moment when the party basically welcomes in masses a number of mass number of people the party grows and my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that there's this shift from the party imagined as something smaller of um uh, very very not specialized individuals and committed individuals, but there's a sort of way where the party, the, the bounds of what constitutes the party expands. Obviously, commitment and political commitment is very important, but lots of people who maybe weren't involved previously in the movement, who come from peasant backgrounds, who come from non-political backgrounds, join the party. And so for, for, for the sake of like understanding um, the, the development of this institution that you study, the party and the primary party organizations, how does this expansion of the party to become a mass participatory institution change it? That's a very interesting discussion to have. Um, and in terms of the when and the why, basically what, what happens is that after, after the civil war, the, what then becomes the Soviet Union is uh, essentially in ruins. Um, the, the cities are empty of people. They've all, they've all left. They've died. Some of them have left and gone to the countryside because this is where food can be obtained. Industries are standstill. And um, the Bolsheviks are facing the very real danger of being um, the ruling party uh, in the name of a class that doesn't exist anymore. So what they do is first they try to kickstart industry by reintroducing um, some sort of market mechanisms in, in the new economic policy. But the second, their second plank is they try to reconnect to the working class as it then is, and as it really is at the time, by... Um, recruiting mass numbers of workers into the party. 
And they do this on the occasion of Lenin's death, and this is why it's called the Lenin enrollment. And they, they have three ways, essentially. And they are very successful in, in doing that because they, they go from... I can't remember the, the numbers, but they, they, more, they more than double the membership of the party, and they, and they turn the party into a properly um, working-class organization. Most of, the, most of the members, by the time they, the time they finish with these enrollments, they are working-class people who are actually employed in production. They aren't people who used to be um, workers in a factory and have since become managers or soldiers or so on. They are... They are the proletariat, as as, in, as seen by uh, in Marx's theory, industrial workers. Now, the interesting thing about this is how it has been interpreted historiographically. I think, and I I feel that um, a lot of the discussion revolves around the the extent of um, of the political awareness of the people who were recruited into the party. So um, one of the one of the arguments of um, Trotsky and his followers subsequently was that by flooding the party with new members, the Stalinist uh, clique was able to sort of. Um, suffocate the uh, real committed um, revolutionary members of the party by just packing the meetings, essentially, because people had no idea what the, the stakes were. And I feel like uh, this interpretation has also had some resonance with um, non-Marxist takes on Soviet history. Um, there was a recent book, recent 2017, I think, uh, by uh, I can't remember. I think the surname was McAdams. It's called uh, "The Vanguard of the Revolution: A Global History of the Communist Party," and it's um, one of the arguments that are made there is basically that the party died as a political organization during that time. Because from becoming, from, from being a, a, a space for political debate and intellectual exchange, it became uh, an institution for uh, administration. And it seems to me that this is a very wrong way of looking at this issue, because if socialism is a political project that is implementable, then it has to have real political institutions. It has to be um, the Communist Party should be an institution that implements policy. It shouldn't be a discussion club. And it seems to me that this um, this uh, this idea of the party being suffocated by inexperienced political workers it it comes from uh, from an idea of of the Communist Party as a discussion club, which to a large extent, not particularly the Bolsheviks from the from 1905 onwards, but um, other socialist organizations were. And obviously, if you are a socialist intellectual and your and your primary political 
engagement is discussion, theoretical discussion of political programs and their fine details, then it, might, it is possible that you will find this um, transformation very alienating. But it seems to me that from, from a revolutionary perspective, if you are actually committed to this massive scale social transformation, then you want as many people as possible to be involved in the political organization that implements that change. So this is a necessary element of the of the progress of revolution, of the institutionalization of revolution, if you like. Obviously, the fact that these people were not politically educated or even educated at all, it was a problem and it was recognized by the leadership as well, which is why they invested so much effort into socializing them into the culture of Bolshevism, but also educating them um, in, in Marxist-Leninist theory. And you can, obviously, you can argue that um, they did this poorly or it failed or that the, the party was eventually overwhelmed. But um, to me, at least, it seems, it seems fairly normal that this happened. But it doesn't seem to me that this constitutes a deviation from um, the, the natural progress of revolution, if you like. A revolution in the conditions of the Russian Empire was bound to lead to that, and it wasn't less revolutionary for that reason. That's what I'm trying to say. Obviously, you can argue that this shows that um, actually revolutions don't lead anywhere, but I don't think you can argue that this indicates uh, a deviation from the revolutionary project. This leads nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was that you know, very often in uh, historiography of the Soviet Union and among the left as well, there is emphasis that is put on the end of Lenin's life and the emergence of Stalin and this kind of split or break uh, from the intention, uh, the revolutionary essence or, or, or goals of 1917. And so at the, and at the same time, of course, some people then try on the on the opposite side to talk about the emergence of Stalin as this um, as this you know pre or consequence um, of nineteen seventeen and revolution and Marxism in, in negative light. Um, and both of these, of course, miss many details and nuance um, of actually what was going on in the Soviet system. But one of the questions I had was. Through your closings, I I was curious how you approach this question of like continuity and change, continuity or change between the the first years um, of the Soviet project and the Stalin years, or even within the Stalin years, um, maybe there are different moments because in reading your book. You seem to suggest that there were certain elements of the party's political commitments and institutional role that was actually quite consistent and that there were fluctuations, but that the party itself maintained this consistency. So I'm curious, like, what then is the implication for understanding the Soviet 
union in the uh, change from the Lenin years to the Stalin years when the party is the subject of interrogation and investigation? I think in any study of history, there's going to be continuities on some changes and you need to be sensitive to what the relative degree of each is. Um, to my mind, at least, I, I don't think there is a I don't think there is a serious political um, break between um, Leninism and Stalinism, as implemented at least in the in, in practice in, in, in Soviet practice in the 1920s and 1930s. What changes are the conditions, um, the um, some some of which are changes that are brought about by policy um, initiatives of the Communist Party. But um, I don't think there is any serious change in terms of purpose on the broad um, sense of what the available tools of achieving that purpose are. And if you look at the party again, then basically the idea is that you know, the, the leadership has to lead. The most advanced, as um, the, the term they used at the time, was the most advanced members of the working class need to show the way. And that means basically people who are experienced in administration, they should be administrators and they should train other people to be administrators. And that doesn't really change in after 1924. It's the same. What happens is that you need more administrators as the, um, as the economy grows. You need more administrators as um, the state takes a more active economic role. You need more administrators as you start building a more um, powerful military to prepare against the possibility of war. And but I, I don't think that uh, Lenin had a substantially different view on these aspects than Stalin or any other member of the leadership. I don't think Trotsky did either. If you if we look at um, Trotsky's main political intervention and during the left opposition debate, it doesn't say that we need a multi-party democracy or a, a different um, sort of political system. All it says is that the party leadership needs to be more responsive to the demands of the rank and file, which is what the leadership is also saying and it turns out that actually the leadership platform is more responsive to the demands of the rank and file than the left opposition platform. So I don't think there is um, there's much to separate the two periods in that regard from a political um, point of view. There's obviously there are massive social changes that happen in the Soviet Union after Lenin dies that Lenin could probably have not conceived because the industrialization is a massive change. You have cities doubling in population. But um, in terms of the broad shape of policy, I don't think there is a serious difference. And again, I think there are valid arguments to be made against uh, the political project as such. But it seems to me um, very wrongheaded to suggest that uh, the, the political project of um, 
of socialism can be somehow completely separated from the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. It seems to me a very strange position. The local agency when it came to so-called repression, um, maybe you can discuss that a little bit because it seems like the way it's always painted is, is that it was this unified, top-down, um, repressive sort of directives. Um, maybe you can address that. We've had others that address this in different ways, um, but I know you mentioned this and the same people that were on the local, um, local ground were giving profiling some of these people that are problematic. So you had to sort of trust their own. Obviously, the question of political violence in the Russian Revolution in the Soviet Union is uh, very important and very vexed because there was a lot of it. There's no reason to deny that. I'll be completely silly. But I think um, it's also a bit counterintuitive because um, obviously the question of violence is very closely connected to the question of the state. State power is to a large extent the ability to exercise violence. And there is certainly um, there is certainly a sense in which political violence in the Soviet Union is targeted and planned. There is a political police and the, the political leadership does have the ability to order um, political violence against its opponents if it so desires. But it's, it's, a very, it's very simplistic to look at it this way because what we find is that both the demand and the actual um, um, and the targets of political violence are in a way produced by um, by the masses of the Soviet Union. And in a way, the more attempts with um, <clears throat> democratic reforms that the Soviet Union makes during that time, the more violence you get. Because it seems to me at least that there was a pervasive um, belief in enemies. In, in the Soviet Union time that was shared by the population. And such enemies could be um, the more conspiratorial image of the sort of agent, the saboteur, but also people who came from different um, social backgrounds or who were corrupt or who tried to use their positions to um, to their own benefit at the expense of other people. And these people were perceived as political enemies in the Soviet Union. And in the context of, um, of very, both real, but also somehow um, inflated security concerns, these, um, these, con these social conflicts would also often take a violent, um, a violent character. And if you if you if you go back to to what we were discussing before about the labor management um, relations, we have um, instances of, of rank and file communists denouncing 
man, man, managerial personnel, whether foremen or higher-up managers, as enemies to the authorities or threatening to do so. And I think this, the fact that um, rank-and-file workers can credibly threaten their bosses with state violence is an extremely interesting trait of the Soviet political system at the time. This is this is what shows, I think, um, the extent of of, of the revolutionary um, nature of, of the Soviet political system at the time. It was um, it was a it was a political system where hierarchies were very um, were, were very fluid and they were changing all the time. And just because um, some people were in a lot of what was going on, obviously there were people who were um, rather um, safe and secure. Stalin being at the center of it, there was no one who could actually take him out. But we see that no one else was in a position of power is safe. And this is to a large extent a result of um, the state apparatus being very responsive to the real and present fears of of society. To put this in a, to put this in a simpler and slightly more provocative way, as um, more democracy isn't necessarily good in all. Um, in all, in all cases, democratizing violence will usually lead to more violence. But the question, um, the question that becomes how how to control this, um, how to control this input. Yeah, it was uh, we had an interview with Ronald Sunni in his book, Stalin, the Caucasian, you know, revolutionaries. It was almost always the people themselves were way more violent than the party. And so the party had to like rein them in because they wanted to do avenge killings like all the time. And so you had times when, you know, the social Democrats were like, killing is bad. <laughs> so to try to rein in. Sometimes they can't control um, the people. Sometimes they don't want to. Sometimes obviously there will be people who cynically exploit these um these dynamics for their own political advantage. I'm um, recently teaching uh, on political violence in the Soviet Union, and I, I used a text by Artie Getty, and I, I remember um, there's a phrase in it that's actually, I think, very apt. And what, what it says is that um, uh, neither Lenin nor Stalin created popular violence. They, they sided with it, but it was already there. So in a sense, these are political leaders responding to uh, a demand, a political demand that is um, surging from the ground up. You, obviously, you can argue that they, they, would have, they should have responded in a different way. They should have maybe taken a hard line against uh, political violence. Um, this is again a different question. It's not a question of them creating um, the situation. You know, your book, your study is 
what some call a micro history um, in that you are focusing on something very specific, the Kirov factory in Leningrad and the part primary party organizations there. Um, but what's interesting is that through this very, very um, pointed study of a specific institution in a specific place, you're able to kind of develop or add something to the broader conversations about the nature of the Soviet Union. So in approaching Soviet history, how do you, what do you think is the utility for those of us who are interested in Soviet history in approaching it through these very specific uh, micro examples, through doing this micro history? How does this help us understand the Soviet system or sort of elements of Soviet history in a bigger sense? I don't want to say popular because sometimes that seems as a bit dismissive, but the broader, the non-specialist interest in Soviet history is often fairly, um, it's fairly sociological, I would say. It, it, it's um, very broad strokes. So especially um, when, you're, when you're looking at um, some market perspectives, on Soviet history, these will be things like um, there was a, a revolution in a, in a back uh, in a backward society, and then eventually it developed into this system of state capitalism, bureaucratic collectivism, deformed uh, worker states, and so on and so forth. And um, I think. Uh, I read a lot of that stuff when I was uh, a young and impressionable student, but I always, um, I, it wasn't very satisfying because I, I, I wanted to know what was actually going on in terms of, um, of the real process of, of politics and, uh, and social development. And to my mind, at least, uh, the best way of doing this is by focusing on one on one specific aspect of Soviet history that is possible to both define and um, investigate in depth. And obviously, you can understand how this was um, potentially different from other parts of um, the Soviet Union, both because we do have the numbers, we know that um, not all areas are so industrialized. We know that not um, um, all workplaces were so deeply saturated with party members. We know that um, there were um, areas of industry that were um, where women were uh, more prominent than men in terms of the workforce. There are all these different uh, aspects that one needs to consider. But I think by looking at um, by by looking at this very empirically, you get you get an idea of what this particular political project meant in a very specific context, and then you can correct for the ways in which it would have been different by looking at how other places were different in terms of their sociological um, markers. Ideally, you want more people to go out there and do um, empirical research on very concrete aspects of um, 
Soviet socialism. You want people in, to go and look at the, the Communist Party organizations in Georgia, for example, or um, in collective farms, or in um, rural Georgia, which is different from rural Russia, it being a more mountainous place and so on. There are many ways in which you can um, concretize this even further. But I think... Um, the reason I chose this particular topic was that it seemed to me that um, the Kira factory in the Leningrad region where they, they provided the ideal conditions for the implementation of the Marxist political project as it was um, conceived in the early 20th century. This was a very highly industrialized area it was the it was the most technologically advanced factory in in the soviet union here was essentially the silicon valley of the soviet union at the time this was it was the cutting edge you had a very strong revolutionary tradition you have a tradition of workers being involved in politics and caring about the commons so if you're going to look at this political project that is all about um transforming society through the working class and in the image of the working class, then you, this is some, something very interesting to look at, I think. And all, but you should always, um, I think, keep in mind that this is a very concrete example. It's not necessarily um, applicable to what uh, the Soviet Union was or how it was functioning throughout its history. You know, I liked this part of your book where you discussed how they tried to implement educational um, projects in the factories and how there was like mixed results um, in the, and, and, and again, I know I'm not saying this is some kind of reductive economist argument, but I'm saying that as there are tensions around trying to figure out how to implement these educational projects overseen by the party, there are limits to the capacity of workers to actually implement and, and study, right? Time, pressures from industrialization. Um, and so, but then at the same time, so that was like one piece that I found really interesting, the kind of like limits and, and the way that workers were forced based on their circumstances to negotiate the implementation of party directives um, in terms of education regarding. But then at the same time, um, when the purges emerge um, in different moments and workers are in positions where they have to negotiate what constitutes a good communist or not you you talk about different instances right where they're like you know and again they're not it's not universal but one instance of course that you discussed was a situation where workers are basically articulating a good communist not in terms of their ideological um uh commit their ideological commitment or prowess for lack of a better word, but the way in which they are productive on the shop floor, right? Their ability to be a good worker, their ability to um, meet plans. And then on top of that too, sorry, to, another kind of component of this is like, I also was interested how the workers would in, interpret 
external sabotage of the Soviet project through uh, other workers not implementing plans or through management not effectively overseeing the production process. So this, this way in which the like shop floor is engaging with these kind of like uh, discussions about the nature of the Soviet Union and the party, whether it's what is a good communist, how the communist is going to implement so implement and build Soviet socialism, or in the opposite way, how threats to the Soviet system are manifesting. And so it's really interesting how like you kind of take the perspective of the worker and say and try to at least add some legibility in a historical sense to like how the worker interpreted these. And this is one of my favorite parts, I think, of your, of your book. And more, more than a question, I just had like, that was a comment, you know, that I really liked this part of your book. I, I actually really enjoyed it as well, um, working with the, with the documents, because it's so fascinating. It gives you a real window into what actual people were thinking. We're not talking about uh, structures anymore, right? Institutions, these are real historical subjects with their names and you get the age as well and you know who these people were. And yeah, I think I think the main takeout here is that basically the the educational initiatives of the party were by and large working in the sense of being successful in socializing the new um, generation of members into the political norms on the culture of Bolsonaro. And obviously this, these norms and cultures also changed by this influx of new members, which is, as we discussed earlier, a normal process. But um, at the same time, the, the, the extent to which um, individual people were able to internalize the ideology and the um, the finesse with which they internalized it was was different by degree. I mean, I'm an academic and I don't have enough time to read all the things that I want to read. Obviously, if you if you're working a double shift and you have to read your um, marks uh, during your breaks, you are probably not going to get a very deep understanding of the labor theory of value. But what these people did. Um, it was the meaning of uh, of the political project they were participating. So they, they did understand that labor was important, that it was um, that they were involved in the creation of a new form of um, politics and social uh, living through their labor. So they made their activity as workers the main piece of their of their um, of their activity as political actors as well. And the way this manifests is by reinterpreting a good communist to be a good worker, because a good worker was not only just someone who, who achieved high targets, although that was that was important. A good worker was also someone who was a good colleague. So if you 
if you are achieving the targets, then that means that your your crew is also achieving the targets. It means that your um, your section of uh, of the factory doesn't have stoppages. It doesn't have um, doesn't have accidents. You know, if you if you if you pick up after yourself, then your mate won't get killed. These are important. These are important things. Again, remember that this is industrialization is a very strenuous process. This isn't a well-ordered, uh, smoothly functioning factory. It's it's something that is that people are learning to do just at the time as it's um, as it's as, as it's taking off. So the the Kira factory is essentially rebuilt in the first in the first year plan, and then. All the workers are new. They don't know how the machines work, and when they get um, massive orders for tractors, they don't know how to make things work. So, if you are putting in the work into completing the plan, then you are being a good communist, both in the sense that you are implementing party policy, but also in the sense that you are being this model of the new social subject that is making labor into into a, a politically and culturally significant activity. And when you're not doing this, then you are becoming someone who is potentially hostile. And when it is discovered that you also perhaps come from a from a, from a Kulak background, a, a rich peasant background, this is possible because at the time Obviously, after collectivization, a lot of the of the formerly well-to-do peasants, if they could escape deportation, they would make their way into the cities and get factory jobs. And maybe, you know, maybe they would actually be really angry at having their stuff taken away and their family shot, as you would be. And maybe they would take um, the anger off at um, on, on, on communists or other workers, or. It's also possible that they weren't, and they were just not really good at their job. But when it was discovered that they were also, um, they had also been possibly kulaks, then this was um, this was reinterpreted as sabotage. But um, there is, um, I remember very vividly um, reading a document at a, at, a, at a purging meeting. And there's this guy who was speaking about the, the conditions in the factory, and he says, um, deliberately or not, our plans are being sabotaged. And I'm, they're thinking, what do you mean deliberately or not? If it's, if it's not deliberate, then it's not sabotage. It's someone being not very good at their work. But this was, um, this was the political environment of the, of the time. Um, so, Yanis, it's been really wonderful listening to you. Um, I hope everyone gets your book, buys it, and not steals it only. Um, and to read it, it's really in incredible and enlightening to look at things in a very different perspective, because I think it's uh, Soviet Union uh, suffers from always being looked upon as sort of monolithic. Um, to end things, uh, what do you think, why do you think these histories are important? What motivates you? Um, and what do you think others who are listening today or read your book should take away in a more practical sense? Well, I mean, from a scholarly perspective, I think uh, it's um, it's very important to realize that during the 20th century, uh, 
roughly one third of uh, the world ended up under political systems uh, that were inspired or derived from the Soviet political system. And to have a better understanding of how the Soviet political system works is, I think, a first step towards having a seriously um, nuanced historical understanding of that huge part of the world um, in, in the past centuries. If, if we're thinking about uh, the Soviet Union in black and white uh, terms and with very, very rough concepts, then we're not going to get a, we're not going to have a more uh, nuanced uh, understanding about uh, Mozambique or China. So in in a sense, we need we need to have better history for the Soviet Union in order to have better history for the world. It's socialism, real socialism, state socialism, if you like, government by communist parties and their allies was a major part of um, the historical experience of the 20th century. It's not uh, an exotic niche subject. And obviously still there are um, there are ruling communist parties in the world and they, they govern in, in ways that are drawn from that early period. And obviously if, if you want to understand um, a lot of um, what is going on in modern day China, it would, you can be informed by uh, Soviet history. Obviously, it's better if you study China itself, but in, if history teaches anything in that regard, then the history of socialism is, um, is very instructive for the history of the world, of the modern world. Now, for um, in terms of, um, of more political interests, I think if anyone is interested in uh, in socialist politics, in politics uh, derived from the labor movement, I I don't think it's possible to um, circumvent the Soviet Union. It's just such a major part of of historical socialism that, uh, to my mind at least, it would be both impossible and extremely wrong-handed to disregard. You could. If the Soviet Union is not part of socialism, then socialism isn't really a thing in the 20th century. It remains, again, it remains that uh, notion in the realm of ideas, which obviously for um, it might be interesting for some, but I don't see how it would be politically relevant at all. If, even if you disagree with almost everything that happened in the Soviet Union, you need to have a, a fairly good understanding of how it functioned in order to articulate Let's 
Tu me drops, tell me why.